0: Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Jeremiah chapter 12. Hear now the word of our God from Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. For because they said he will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them, and after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring each to his land, each I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives even as they taught my people to swear by baal then they shall be built up in the midst of my people but if any nation will not listen then i will utterly pluck it up and destroy it declares the lord this is the word of the lord i have often i've often noticed as in preaching through the the scriptures that the apostles and our lord himself were very much rooted in this understanding of the exile that Jeremiah is talking about after all that's where they lived we've forgotten the exile for the most part we don't think about the exile nearly so much we tend to think in terms of oh we 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 know the story of of, of Adam and Eve and we we know about we know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and maybe we get as far as, as as Moses and and Joshua and the conquest, and and yeah, there was that David guy. He was king, and and, and let's see, his name, his son Solomon. Right and after that, it's all it's all a blur. I mean, I'm seeing from some smiles that this is your experience too. I mean, this is a full thirty forty percent of my Bible was this impenetrable morass of the prophets which a few chapters in Isaiah oh yeah it's a few chapters in Jeremiah okay and then the rest of it was like uh uh-huh. what Jeremiah 12 I mean how, seriously how many of you oh yeah Jeremiah 12 one of my favorite chapters but this is this is the world this is the the context in which our lord Jesus Christ and his apostles were operating they lived in the In this, sort of, this is where they came from. Because God had promised the restoration of Judah and any nation, any people that would confess Judah's God. Jeremiah promises, any nation who fears the Lord will will be built up in the midst of my people. And then, but he also warns that those who do not will be destroyed. Our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Hear now the word of our God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ We confess in the creed that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we've been looking at, at how the whole creed is, has that Trinitarian structure. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. So because of that, I wanted to start in our discussion of the church with Paul's Trinitarian foundation for the church in Ephesians 2. Paul is speaking of how Gentiles and Jews are brought together in one new man, really the fulfillment of what Jeremiah had spoken of, as Jesus Christ reconciles both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross. And then through him, through Jesus, we have access, both Jew and Gentile, to the Father in one spirit. And then in Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God the Father has welcomed you into His family, into His household, because God the Son, the only begotten of the Father, has brought you near by His own blood. And God the Holy Spirit is is Himself the gift of uncreated grace, the presence of God himself, that that phrase, uncreated grace, I think comes in handy just to remind us of what we're talking about. Because when we think about all the gifts of God's grace, we, we oftentimes focus on the good things he gives us. But we need to remember that the best thing he gives us is himself. Indeed, this is at the heart of Paul's point when he says that You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, another reason for starting with Ephesians 2 is that Ephesians 2 is laying the groundwork for what we also see in Ephesians 4, where Paul in Ephesians 4 says that there is one body. Why does he say that there's one body in Ephesians 4? Well, because in Ephesians 2, verse 16, he had said that Jesus reconciles us to God in one body through the cross. And in Ephesians 4, Paul will say there is one spirit. Well, in Ephesians 2, verse 18, he had said that through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Some people have said that, oh, when Paul talks about the church, he he only talks about the local church. And he doesn't have a broader sense for the church. But clearly in Ephesians, Paul is thinking about the church, singular, in a much more universal sense. And in chapter 3, as as we keep looking into Paul's epistle, in chapter 3 in verse 8, Paul goes on to say that his ministry is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church here is plainly more than just a local gathering. The church here is referring to the the whole people of God and what God is doing in all of history. Which church? It's the church. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Because Jesus only has one church. That's why he says in chapter 4, there is one body. That that one body is the whole church of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul is so emphatic about the unity of the church in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So when we talk about the unity of the church... We are talking about something that God has established in his spirit by the work of his son. It's if, really, it's a Trinitarian establishment of the unity of the church. Now, you might say, okay, well, if, if, if this is more than just local congregation, which church is it? You know, I'm sure you're going to say the Presbyterian church, right, Pastor? R- Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, the landmark Baptists claim they, they have it now we'll we'll talk more about this when we get to catholic and apostolic but when we talk about the unity of the church the oneness of the church we are talking about how jesus christ has united a people to himself by his spirit and if he has united us to himself then we are also united to one another as well and that so in that sense the oneness of the church is is first and foremost Something that God has established. It simply is the case. Now, that means that we must work to embody that visibly. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we were using John 14 through 16 in our discussion of the Holy Spirit. And in, well, the next chapter, John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and he, he prays for them and for all who believe through their preaching, which means he prays for you too. And Jesus prays this concerning you, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me when you know, we've been, we've seen the importance of 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 the the persons of the Trinity mutually indwell one another. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Spirit is in the Son. The Spirit is in the Father. And now, because of that unity, when the Spirit comes to us, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, when the Spirit comes to us, we are joined to the life of God. Well, that oneness, that unity of the people of God is something that Jesus goes so far as to say that that it's because of that oneness that the world Will believe that the Son was sent by the Father. So when we're not acting like one, we're effectively saying by our actions, the Father didn't send the Son. Is it any, any wonder why people don't believe when they look at the church and say, <laughs> well, if that's, if, if that's what the oneness looks like? Because the oneness of the church is not only a given it 's not only something that God has established, the oneness of the church is also something that we have to embody we have to put into practice. The division of the church is not a good thing indeed, the, the division of the church only comes about because of sin now that doesn 't mean that the people that, that it 's always the fault of the people that left sometimes it 's the fault of the people that pushed them out. Uh, Actually, if you want a good illustration of how the scripture thinks about the oneness of the church, think back to the days of Jeroboam, the son of Solomon, or Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And when Jeroboam rebelled and led the northern kingdom away from from the son of David, you can see how the sin of Solomon, and then especially the sin of Rehoboam, provoked the whole situation. So when we say that, that division always comes about because of sin... Sometimes it's the sin of those in charge. And it's also worth noting that God promised Jeroboam that if Jeroboam would follow him and worship him appropriately, then God would bless Jeroboam and give him a long standing kingdom. Now, he also told Jeroboam, Now, I have promised to David that, so basically, your kingdom won't last forever but i have promise but if you if you're faithful and you follow me then i will bless you and the northern kingdom of israel would be blessed by god there you have you might say that what you know a, an example of a church split where god seems to be siding with the group that split if they'll follow him now if you know the story you know that jeroboam d- doesn't in fact, Jeroboam builds golden calves for Israel to worship. It's like, and God's like, no, no, that's not following me. Uh, so, because of, and that's where, so just, you know, it's, it, it, I like the illustration of Jeroboam as sort of how to think about a church split because there's a way of dividing that is proper when those in authority are completely misbehaving and doing things that are harmful to the people of God. But, that doesn't mean that therefore whatever the splitters do is, is fine. So that's with the caution for those who split. Because, so, you know, church divisions are never a good thing. And you can see all sorts of misery that results from, from the division of Israel. And in the same way, you see lots of misery that results from church divisions today. Where there has been sin, we need to repent. I mean, the, One example, the the founding of the PCA was was tainted by by some serious racism. There were some founders of the PCA who publicly objected to having black elders or pastors sitting in presbytery with white pastors. And so several years ago, the PCA General Assembly publicly repented of letting that slide and, and permitting that in our midst at the beginning of the PCA. Because it's important that when we have sinned, that we own it and say, no, we were wrong. We shouldn't have done that. Because, and, then, and then to put into practice the, that repentance. But why is it important to believe in one church? Why does the unity of the church matter? Well, um, one simple reason is because she's our mother. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 4 that the heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. I mean, you're probably familiar and you probably used the image of, of the church as the bride of Christ. But did you know that the Bible actually uses the term mother more often for church than bride? Paul, Paul uses the term bride of Christ in a couple of really famous passages. But bride actually is only used a handful of times, whereas mother is used actually dozens of times throughout Old and New Testament. Actually, if you think about it, if the church is the bride of Christ... Well, uh, what do you suppose happens when Christ and his bride are, yeah. Well, um, John Calvin has a lovely way of saying this in his, when he's opening his discussion of the church. He says, I shall start then with the church into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. For those to whom God is father, the church may also be mother. Or as he puts it shortly thereafter, for there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the church, conceive us in her womb, give us birth and nourish us at her breast. Part of this is drawing from Paul's own language uh, in Galatians 4:19, when he admonishes the Galatians as "my little children," for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Or in 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul says, "We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children." There's a way in which all of us are are, are spiritually born again through through in the, in, in the womb, as it were, of the church. But in this way, the oneness of the church is closely related to her holiness. Uh, and in, if you look over at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul speaks to the church, and Paul regularly, re- again, refers to the church as holy. And the holiness of the church is also like the oneness of the church. It's something established by God. It's a, In one sense, it's a given, But in another sense, the the holiness of the church is something that we also must pursue and embody. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, he speaks, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The holiness of the church is both a gift and a calling. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus... Now, if you know what's coming next in the book of 1 Corinthians, to call them sanctified seems a little bit odd. This is the most fractured, divided, sinful church of any of the churches written to in the New Testament. And he calls them to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are holy. They are consecrated. They are set apart as a holy people, a holy dwelling place for God. You are a holy church. That's, that's who you are. Now, but in the same, in the same breath, Paul says, to, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be holy. So in the very same breath that he's saying, you are sanctified, he says, but you are called to be holy. It's both a gift and a calling. It's both a gift and a task. You are called to be holy because your God is holy and he has joined you to himself. So when we talk about the oneness of the church, we also, yes, we believe in one church. We also believe in a holy church. And And then thirdly, we declare that we believe in a Catholic church. What do we mean by this? In our day, a lot of people have sort of surrendered the term Catholic to the Roman church, but there's no need for that. I mean, should we surrender the term Pentecost just because the Pentecostals use it? Or the Baptists, um, because we're, no. This this had better be a Pentecostal church. If this is not a Pentecostal church, we don't have the Holy Spirit. This is a Baptist church, because we better believe we baptize. We affirm there is one baptism. Now, some might say, well, but those terms are found in the Bible. Catholic, it's not found in the Bible. So why not let Rome have it? Oh, I could as easily surrender Catholic as I could surrender Trinity. It goes back a long way in the history of the church and communicates something that is at the very heart of the gospel. Because to speak of the Catholic church is to speak of the universal, the, the general, the, the whole church. And that's where it, 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 it expresses something that one, doesn't quite capture. Yes, we believe in one church, but you could argue oneness could be taken in a lot of different directions. Catholic, general, universal, expresses the the wholeness of the church. That And indeed, the same verse that highlights the holiness of the church also highlights the Catholicity of the church. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The church of God in Corinth is called to be saints, called to be holy ones. Together with all those who confess the name of Jesus, and again, in all, all those who in every place, well, that includes you, the, the catholicity of the church is something that is both. It is. It's, it's something that is both something that it, it is extensive in space, the whole church in every place, but also in time, the whole church throughout all of history. So since we have come to faith in Jesus through the apostles' teaching, we are joined together with them as one holy Catholic Church. And our our Westminster Confession provides a helpful statement of the importance of Catholicity because it says that... Unto the Catholic and visible Church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does, by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. So it's important for us to see the Catholicity of the Church as being, this is something that is not just, it's not just a sort of a spiritual, sort of invisible, sort of, Ethereal thing up there out there somewhere it 's very practically oriented in the life of 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 the body and of churches in fellowship with one another now you don 't need formal organization to be Catholic uh, if you look at in in the, in the, in the, in the new testament in, in acts fifteen we we see the Jerusalem Council gathering the Jerusalem Council isn't a general assembly in the sense of modern Presbyterian sense of the term you don't see every every regional church sending delegates no it's it's not an ecumenical council in the sense of when you when you, look, when you look at who shows up to it it's the mother church in Jerusalem resolving problems for her daughter churches around her so there's a way in which it's not it's not so much a formal organization but it is really important to have the fellowship of the church, the communion of saints, as the Apostles' Creed puts it. In in the first century, the apostles were the point of contact. Because in the first century, if you're in fellowship with the apostles, then you are part of the church of Jesus Christ. And for a couple hundred years after that, the apostolic churches remain in fellowship with each other based on their common source in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And what you see in the early churches, you see sort of a regional diversity. You see you see in each in each place you see some variation in the liturgy, in the way the creed is structured and church orders run. But there's a very common pattern. All the creeds Look a lot like the Apostles' Creed. That the, the Apostles' Creed that we use is is one of the early baptismal creeds. That so, so you'll find these sort of Trinitarian creeds all over the early church with slight variations in wording. The liturgy, the liturgy. I mean, each each part of the church had its own. You know, in different languages, it takes slightly different shape. In different regions, it's somewhat different here and there. But again, there's a common pattern. In you have you have the word proclaimed, and the, the prayers of the saints, and the and the the, 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 the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper administered. And there's there's this basic pattern of 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 the liturgy that is. There's a certain commonality, even as it may vary from place to place. Now, part of the part of the problem is we've we now live in a, in the modern world post Rome. Uh, the Bishop of Rome deserves a fair amount of the blame for what's happened here because this is, he, Roman Catholicism tried to enforce sort of organizational uniformity on everyone. And it, the Reformation did not reject the idea of Catholicity. They simply said the Pope has overstepped his rightful place. If he'd content himself with being the Bishop of Rome, then we, we could live with him as first among equals as long as equals actually meant something. <laughs> but the claim of Roman supremacy, that's thats not what the apostles set up. The reformers were trying to really, in a sense, go back to the way the early church did things in maintaining fellowship between regional churches without requiring organizational uniformity. Actually, and you see this in In the way that they, you know, at the at the Synod of Dort, they would they would bring together people. They brought in representatives from the various churches around. It wasn't just the Netherlands that met. They wanted all the other Reformed churches to participate and weigh in on the the concerns that were facing them. But unfortunately, things kind of collapsed. And particularly in America, this has been because of our tendency to say, you know, nobody tells me what to do. We've we've wound up with split after split after split. So today we face a rather bewildering situation. How do we do fellowship? How do we practice catholicity in an age that doesn't do catholicity anymore? Um, and this is where. Uh, the, the, the pandemic. So, for those of you who are new, uh, the pandemic slowed down some of our regional church activities in this area. But we used to actually do regular joint services with various churches in the area, and we've uh, and we in, in, in various ways we've we've connected with with a number of churches. Twenty years ago, we started with some of our closer neighbors, Grace Reformed OPC in Walkerton and the Elkhart RPCNA. And then as more churches have been planted, we've connected with New City EPC and Christ Church Anglican, Redemption City Church. Uh, The joint services we've had with Greater Mount Calvary, Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, These are the sorts of things that we've trying to build fellowship, trying to connect with the, well, the one holy Catholic church throughout this region. Because, sure, when you look at the Michiana region, it's hard to see the Catholic church very clearly. She's divided into a hundred splinters, but if we believe that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, then we then yes, the Church of Jesus Christ exists in this region, and by the grace of God, she may become more visible through the efforts of the people of God to live this out, whether it's working together in you know, over the years we've worked with other churches, food pantries, homeless ministries pro life movements, working with juvenile offenders, tutoring so this is where, it's not like Michiana Covenant has to start something. If, if we're going to do something, you can only do it through Michiana Covenant. No. I mean, actually, We want to work with our sister churches around us in so that we're not trying to always reproduce something. Part of the reason why we're starting the counseling ministry is because there's not much in the area. In that way, and hopefully we can draw some other churches into this and then as they say, "Oh, that looks like a good idea," and so we wind up with multiple churches working together in supporting a counseling ministry but this is but this is part of, part of this is important because if we really believe in one holy Catholic church, if we really believe in the communion of saints then we need to recognize that our communion in one another extends far beyond the, the four walls of this room. Think of how Paul so regularly speaks of churches to one another and encourages connections to, with one another. Our, our confession summarizes this nicely in, in Westminster Confession, chapter 26 all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit, so echoing Paul's language from Ephesians 2, and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. If we are united to Jesus and to one another, then you're connected to every other Christian in, on the planet. And that connection should mean something when you walk out the door. When I went to Eritrea and landed, on the, landed at the airport, I didn't know anybody. of that, there, was a, there was a group of guys over there sort of waving at me because they knew who I was. And I, I didn't know any of them. But I walked over to them and found my brothers. And it was, just, it was instant. It wasn't sort of like, oh, we should get to know him first. It was, no, it was just wherever I've gone in the world, when we were in, when we were in Scotland on, on sabbatical and we had a travel snafu, and so we, we needed a place to stay in Edinburgh for a few days, a family from the church we had visited a couple of weeks earlier said, oh, you can stay at our flat. Uh, we'll go. We'll, we'll go rent a houseboat and stay on the. You know, stay. It was. Just, I mean, they liked renting the houseboat and doing sort of that sort of the little, the little staycation type thing. But they gave us their flat. A lovely place. I mean, it was. It was and we. You know, th- this is the sort of thing that that the Church of Jesus Christ does for one another because you know it's what that communion in each other's gifts and graces. Because we are called to be one, to be holy. We are also called to be Catholic. We are called to put into practice what we are as the body of Christ. And as, again, organizational unity isn't, isn't necessarily the goal. I mean, just try to imagine for a moment what the Church of the United States would look like. <laughs> you know. Way too unwieldy. I think it's a bad idea to have national denominations, much less one whole national church. But it would, what we need is to have regional connection and unity as we get to know the people around us. Well, But this also requires us, you know, in terms of how to get there, requires us to pay more attention to the fourth point of the creed, that we are an apostolic church what does it mean for the church to be apostolic? It's what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when we're told that they devoted themselves, the early Christians after the day of Pentecost, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Notice the connection that Luke makes between the apostles' teaching and the apostles' fellowship. The, it's sometimes people translate it the apostles' teaching, comma, and the fellowship, comma, and the breaking of but the Greek is really clear here. It's the apostles' teaching and fellowship. From the beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ, it, she was an apostolic church. Until Acts 6, the Apostles were the only officers in the church. Paul says in Ephesians 4, the apostles were the first gift to the church. Paul spends much of 2 Corinthians defending his apostolic ministry because he understands if he's not an apostle, then he has no business saying what he's been saying. So, the idea of an apostle is important. Now, part of, in, the, in the first century, the word apostle just meant somebody who's been sent. So, we hear the word apostle and we instantly think, oh, apostle. It's not all bad, but you have to remember when you're reading the word apostle in the New Testament that when they saw it, they just heard oh, a messenger, somebody who's been sent on behalf of sort of an agent, emissary, somebody who's been sent on behalf of somebody else. This also helps understand why there are references to false apostles because we we tend to think of it as oh well, but there were the 12 apostles, the 11 plus 1 plus Paul. But Why is Paul having to defend his apostolic authority if either you're an apostle or you're not, right? Well, there are lots of people in the first century who are sent from one place to another. And there are lots of teachers who are sent. And when a teacher is sent from one place to another, he will likely be called an apostle. So apostle in the first century didn't just mean the 12. Now, what's happened is now for us... It does be, it basically does mean the 12 and their circle. But the problem for the early church was, what do you do when the apostles died? People are saying different things about what the apostolic teaching is. Some say that Jesus was just a man. Others say he was an angel. Others, how, and, and then how do you know where to go to church? How, you know, if, if, you, if, if you go from one town to another, which happened a lot in those days there 's like there 's like three or four different gatherings in this town, and they and uh, which one is the church? They all say they believe in Jesus. How do I know which one to go to? Well, this is why Catholicity was important to the early church because they thought it was important to be connected to each other that they weren 't just isolated off, off over here. so when you 'd moved to one town to another, you 'd say, "Hey, pastor, who are you in fellowship with in Corinth?" and you might say, oh, no, Corinth." <laughs> They're still a mess. Um, <laughs> we know from 50 years after Paul, they were they were still a mess. But, but, how do you know? Well, this is why it was important to them that be in fellowship with the apostles and the apostles' teaching, so that those who were who were connected with the apostles are the ones that you'll be connected with. Really, the only way that divisions and schisms can be resolved is to become more and more an apostolic church. Now, that that doesn't mean that we try to simply reproduce the way things were in the first century. There have been a number of those movements throughout church history and they've all ended badly. Let's not try that one again. An apostolic church does not ignore the 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit's working in the church. But at the same time, an apostolic church will test everything by the apostolic teaching. And that's where so you know, when, when Rome starts adding new doctrines that you can't find in the apostolic teaching, it's like, well, no, you can't do that. On the other hand, we need to be careful because the lesson of Rome should be taken seriously. We could wind up doing the same thing they did. We need to be. I mean, this, this is where the assumption that, oh no, uh, we have an infallible church, the PCA, uh, well, no, of course not. But doesn't that, if we take that seriously, then well, then that means that we could get it wrong, couldn't we? If we if we start acting as though the Westminster Confession is 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 the perfect statement of doctrine and it could never be it could never be amended, well, that would be a claim of infallibility for the Westminster Confession. This is not a, this is not okay, and that's where over the over the last several centuries the Westminster Confession has been amended on several occasions, and we would you know of course it's always a challenge to figure out how. My, my suspicion is how, how, how will it ever get amended probably as the PCA is in negotiations with other churches for closer working together un, possible union and to, and, if, and and they'll have to say hey you know the way you say that you should think about that we need to be willing to listen to our brothers and sisters and say oh okay sort of like what we've seen in Sunday school the way we're using these words, The way you're using these words, you're hearing something that we're not saying. We're hearing something you're not saying. How do we actually say this well together? That's my hunch. Obviously, this climate in our particular moment in American history may not be all that conducive for that sort of conversation, but that's the sort of thing that I think will need to happen in order to Make sure that we're continuing to try to live out what it means to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's not, it's not going to come about by sort of going backwards in history. It can only come by going forwards in following the one Lord who has called us to that one faith that we can continue to pursue. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy. We, we confess before you that, that we, have not lived as one holy catholic and apostolic church we have too often run after our own individual desires and we haven't listened to to your voice and we haven't we haven't done what you have called us to by your prophets and apostles so lord have mercy and forgive us and help us that we might that we might walk faithfully before you as your people that we might hear the the voices of those around us, and be, and 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 live as those who are joined to your Son by your Spirit. That your life might continue in us, to that those around us might indeed see the the unity of your Church, the the oneness that we have with you and with one another, and know that you indeed sent your only begotten Son. And Father, we thank you that that you have done this in spite of our feebles and foibles. Father, we thank you that you have brought people to yourself through the oneness of the church, even when we look at ourselves and say, how did they see oneness? But Lord, you keep doing it. And so we thank you and we pray that you would continue it in Jesus' name. Amen.